Father, we thank you um, that we can come together and um, be in your presence. We thank you that you've blessed us in so many ways, Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that fills us, that uh, enables us to know you, to worship you in in an acceptable way, in a way that pleases you. We ask, Lord, that as we look at your word today, uh, you would be our teacher. We ask that uh, you would give us ears to hear. We pray that, Lord, as uh, Diane prayed, that your word would change us, that we would go from here with the word in our hearts, that it would bear fruit in our lives. And uh, we ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. All right, open to Ephesians 5, which is a great... Uh, text in light of the Thanksgiving season, Ephesians 5. We started to look at this uh, last week. Paul is exhorting the Ephesians to not walk the way they used to walk, to not walk as Gentiles, but to walk as children of light. Chapter 5, verse 8, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light, or the light, is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Discerning or finding out what is acceptable to the Lord, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore, he says, Awake, you who sleep, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give you light, or Christ shall shine upon you. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, um, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. We want, we, we looked at, uh, Last week we read also John 4, where Jesus talks about that we are to worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Uh, Philippians 3, uh, 3, Paul says that we are those who worship in spirit, or it could be translated those who worship by the Spirit of God. So, um, we've, we've talked about the Holy Spirit a bit the past couple weeks, and so... Uh, the question is this, what we see here in Ephesians 5, and really other texts, we see it in Acts, Tom referred to Acts, what we see is the Holy Spirit's presence in the church is, is linked to worship. And so the question I want to ask is this, what is his role, what's the role of the Spirit here in worship? Um, or to ask the question differently, why does Paul tell us to first be filled with the Spirit before we are to sing, to praise, and to think, to thank God. What's what's the connection? 
And and here's the answer in a nutshell. The answer is this. The, the Holy Spirit is given to us for many reasons, right? His ministries are manifold. But one of the fundamental things that the Holy Spirit does is that He teaches, illuminates, or He shows us who God and Jesus Christ really are. That's what He does. He's the illuminator, like the terminator. Look at, look at John uh, 14. Jesus, we've looked at this a bit, a lot, quite a bit actually. But um, just as a refresher here, if you go back to John, really, uh, if we had time, we ought to read chapters 14, 15, and 16 because they all go together. And he talks a lot about the Holy Spirit throughout these texts. He says in, in, go to 14, did I say 16? Okay, good. Okay. Verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper, comforter, it's the paraclete, that he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and he will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. I will come to you, meaning in the person of the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on and he says, um, verse 25, These things I have spoken to you while being present with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I have said to you. Now go to chapter 16. Jesus, again, begins to talk about the Holy Spirit's work. He says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. Jesus is saying, it's good for you that I am not physically present with you. Now, that's that's not the way I think. I mean, wouldn't you love Jesus to physically, physically just pop up in your prayer closet? Wouldn't you? It'd be awesome. But he's saying it's to our advantage that he that he goes away. Why? For if I don't go away, the helper won't come. But if I depart, I will send him to you. It's advantageous that I'm not physically here because then I can send the Holy Spirit and I can be spiritually present. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Of sin because they do not believe. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. And of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will speak of his own. He will, excuse me, he will not speak of his own or his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak and he will tell you things to come. Key verse 14. He will glorify whom? Yeah, he's going to glorify Jesus. Jesus says, he will glorify me. How? For he will take of mine, what is mine, my things, truths about me, and he will declare them or show them to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he will take of mine and declare it 
to you. So, key text on one of the ministries of the Spirit, and his ministry here to his church, is that he will take the things of Jesus, and he will show us Jesus. He will show us God. Okay? Um, so, the question then becomes, how can we... How can we properly worship God or Jesus if we don't know Him? Well, what's the answer? You can't, right? Um, and so what the Scriptures tell us is we can't properly worship God, therefore, without the aid of the Holy Spirit because He is the one that shows us who God is. Otherwise, with, without the Spirit's illuminating work, we, we're like the Athenians in Acts who, who built an altar to the unknown God. They worshipped, but when Paul came, he says, you're worshipping, but you're worshipping an unknown. You don't even know who you're worshipping. Doesn't that sound familiar? Remember the, Jesus talked to the Samaritan woman? What did he say? You worship, you know not what. It wasn't even who. It was what. In other words, you don't really know what you're doing in worship because of ignorance. So what is the solution to that ignorance? The solution is that God grants His people, the Holy Spirit, to show them who He is. Now, this illuminating work of the Spirit can hardly be overemphasized. Why? Because the most important element in our worship of God is God Himself. We have a tendency to think about worship as an experience from which we benefit. Or an experience which we enjoy. Now, I enjoy worship sometimes. No, I'm just being honest. Sometimes during worship, I'm very convicted. And I don't enjoy that. Sometimes I'm humbled. I don't enjoy that either. But we, what, what we tend to do is we tend to want to make worship the object of our worship. And it's very dangerous. This leads, to a, this leads to many unhealthy things in the church. But some people like church, and they like ritual, and they like religion. They like incense. They like stained glass windows. They like organ music. They like, because it, it feels certain aesthetically pleasing and now those things aren't bad it's just that that's not a substitute for true worship okay my experience is much less important than the object that i'm supposed to be focusing on and the object of our worship is is God in Christ, or should I say, God as revealed by Christ, and thus revealed to us through the gift of the Holy Spirit. Let me quote uh, A.W. Tozer. I've quoted him a lot over the years. Um, He wrote a book called The Knowledge of the Holy. Anybody read it? Probably, in my opinion, the best modern book on, on God's character. Real short book. He says, he says this. He says, this is also good. I don't know where to start. Um, 
He says, the low view of God entertained almost universally among Christians is a cause of a hundred lesser evils everywhere among us. A whole new philosophy of the Christian life has resulted from this one basic error in our religious thinking. With our loss of the sense of majesty has come the further loss of religious awe and consciousness of the divine presence. We have lost our spirit of worship and our ability to withdraw inwardly to meet God in adoring silence. Modern Christianity is simply not producing the kind of Christian who can appreciate or experience life in the Spirit. The words, be still and know that I am God, mean next to nothing to the self-confident, bustling worshiper in this middle period of the 20th century. Now, he wrote this back in the 50s, early 60s. Uh, And what he said is even more true today because we're all the more bustling, we're all the more busy, we're all the more attached to our devices, we're all the more distracted, right? Constant stimulation. Um, He says, the decline of the knowledge of the holy has brought on our troubles. It is impossible to keep our moral practices sound and our inward attitudes right while our idea of God is erroneous or inadequate. Amen? Read a little bit more. He says this in chapter 1, which is entitled, Why We Must Think Rightly About God. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I ought to just sit down and let you think about that for 30 minutes. Because that's it. What we think about God is the most important thing about us. And he says, worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. Because you see, when we worship, we're worshiping something, someone. And so what do we, what do we think of this person we are worshiping? For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. True, true, true. Well, I could read more, but I won't. The point is, is that apart from the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit, we will not see God as He is because of our nature being what it is. And so man, being prone to idolatry, we will form misconceptions of God. So we must learn to see God and Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus taught us to pray this way. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You ever said the Lord's Prayer? You ever recited it? Right? If you're... If you're from my tradition, you recited it a whole lot. <clears throat> now, what does that mean? What does that mean? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What does that mean? <clears throat> well, we have to understand two words there. Name and hallowed. Right? When Scripture talks about God's name, 
it's not just talking about the title. A name in Scripture of God, or really a name of a person, is a designation of their character. It's a description, if you will, of who they are. So remember when God, um, when Jacob wrestled with the angel? Remember that in, in Genesis? And it says after, after the, they wrestled, it says that God renamed him Israel. He changed his name. Because as a result of that encounter, he was a changed person. Remember when God called Abram? He gave him a new name, right? Abram, Abraham. Right? He changed his name because there was a change in his character. The divine name is not simply a title, but the divine name is a designation of God's character. In a way, it, it, when we speak of God's name in the generic, hallowed be thy name, it's, it's, a, it's a summation of all of his glorious attributes. That's why the psalmist says, your name is excellent in all of the earth. So Jesus teaches us to to pray, hallowed be thy name. Hallowed, hallowed, holy. But you know what? God's name is holy. God's holy, right? He is. God's holy simply by virtue of who he is. His name is already hallowed in that sense because of who he is. And And I emphasize the word is. Yet the Lord tells us that we should pray that his name be hallowed. Well, how do you pray for something to be that already is? Well, isn't it already hallowed? Isn't God already holy? Then why am I praying for his name to be hallowed? He is holy. His name is glorious. So what we are praying for here is what? We are praying that God's name would be hallowed in our eyes. We are asking God for revelation, illumination, instruction concerning who he is. That's what that prayer really is. Lord, let us see you. Let us know you. Let us understand you in such a way that your name is exalted and your name is honored. Let us understand who you are, God. It's a prayer that we would recognize and honor God for who He truly is. This is a prayer for a spiritual illumination regarding God Himself, the object of our worship. Paul prayed the same thing for the Ephesians. He prayed this in Ephesians 1. He he says, I bow my knee to God the Father that he would give the Father of glory, that he would give you a spirit of wisdom and unveiling in the knowledge of him. Now, these are Christians. Didn't they already know him? Well, for Christians, they already knew him. Still, although they knew him, they needed to know him. So they know him in the sense that they've been born of his spirit. But he, Paul is praying for further instruction and knowledge in who God is. A spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. The eyes of your heart being enlightened. That's the same prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. That God's name would be hallowed in our eyes. 
It's striking that, that Jesus and Paul both follow the similar pattern in their prayers. Go, let's go to the Lord's Prayer for a moment and, and, and uh, look at this in Matthew. Turn to Matthew. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, um, In this manner, therefore, pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Notice that the petition for God's name to be known, for God's name to be hallowed, is the very first petition. Do you think that's coincidental? Do you think it's accidental? No, it's intentional. In other words, God's name being hallowed comes before God's kingdom, before God's will, before our bread, before our deliverance. God's name, knowing God's name, knowing who God is, is the most important thing. Because it's the foundation of all the rest. This is the same thing that, that Paul does in Ephesians chapter 1, if you'd like to turn there. When he prays this prayer for spiritual illumination, it's a long prayer. He says in, in Ephesians 1.18 that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, the eyes of your understanding or heart, being enlightened. That's the first petition. Then he goes on, that you may know the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, what's the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, etc. But the first petition is that our eyes would be illuminated regarding who God is. This is the most important thing. God's eternal purpose has never faltered. From before the foundation of the world, before creation, fall, and the flood, before the call of Abraham, the election of Israel, before the death and resurrection of Jesus, God's purpose was always the same, and that is that His name would be known on the earth. He wanted to reveal Himself to man. That's why He created us. He created us that we might know Him. That's the purpose of our original creation. God, God's purpose has always been to reveal His name so that He might receive glory. And the two always go together. Here, here in Ephesians 1, when Paul talks about all the blessings of being in Christ, notice what he says here um, in verse 6. After he says that we're, we're chosen in him, we're, we're adopted in him, he says in verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Then he says in verse um, 12, that we should, who first trusted in Christ, should be to the praise of his glory. Verse 14, at the end, to the praise of his glory. In other words, all these things that God has done for us in saving us in Jesus Christ, his, his work, his plan of salvation, which was planned before the foundation of the earth, 
All of this was for the praise of His glory. And so we we see this phrase all throughout the New Testament. When in Philippians 1, Paul prays for them and he says that he prays that Jesus would produce righteousness in them for the praise of His name or for the praise of God. It says in Philippians 2 that Jesus, every knee is going to bow to Jesus. Amen. Every tongue will confess. But then it says, to the praise of the glory of the Father. You see, worship isn't really about us. It's about Him. So God reveals Himself, and that revelation results in the recognition of who He is, and this brings Him glory. And the means by which He reveals Himself is the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. Um, as, As Jesus said in John, we saw it earlier, He's ascended. He sends the Holy Spirit. The Spirit convicts the world. So if you, if, if someone doesn't know Christ, the Spirit will work in their life to convict them, to draw them to Christ. And then when the Spirit opens their eyes and they receive Christ, they're illuminated. They understand. Um, I don't know about you, but I had a very dramatic conversion. I once was blind, but now I see. I mean, dramatic, some of you didn't. You Maybe you're raised in a Christian home and it's a, a different religious uh, journey, if you will. But the going from darkness to light, um, going from reading the Bible and, and like, is this a telephone book? <laughs> where, where it means nothing to you, and then, and then reading it and every word is precious. That's the Holy Spirit. I mean, that's what He does. He opens the mind to understand spiritual truth. But the most important thing He reveals, although He reveals many, many, many things, the most important thing He reveals to us is who Jesus Christ and who God the Father are. Jesus said this. He said, No man knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And he to whom the Son wills to reveal him. In other words, we can't know the Father if the Son doesn't show us the Father. But we can't know the Son if the Spirit doesn't show us the Son. It's kind of cool. Each person of the Trinity really reveals the other person of the Trinity. So... The Lord, the ascended Lord, grants His church the Holy Spirit so that we might truly know Him as He is. And that through His work, men and women would be convicted and drawn to Jesus Christ to receive Him. So although God reveals Himself in creation, in nature, in history, in providence, in Scripture, and even in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, Men do not see until the Holy Spirit removes the veil from the heart. Men do not see until the Holy Spirit removes the veil from the heart. I mean, think about this. Read the Gospels, okay? 
you know, I hear sometimes I hear Christians talk in such a way <clears throat> that they think, you know, if something miraculous happens, that's going to convince an unbeliever. Look, Jesus, God incarnate, walked on the earth. It really happened. He took bodily form. God takes bodily form. He's walking around. He's healing sick people. He's giving sight to the blind. He's giving hearing to the deaf. He's casting out demons. He's calming nature. And and the, and the Pharisees, what do they see? Did they see God? No. Here's God standing right in front of them, and they couldn't see him. Why? Because there was a veil on their heart. The things of God are spiritual, and even the physical manifestations of those spiritual things are not understood properly if one does not have the organ of sight to see it. Jesus said that a man must be born again, right? To enter the kingdom of God. But he says in the same text, a man has to be born again to see the kingdom of God. To see it. So, apart from the inward ability to see, it doesn't matter what's displayed around us. God can be working right in front of us. God can be doing amazing things right in front of us and we cannot see it. If we don't have... Illumination. And, and, and people, you know, speak as if, you know, God's, where's God? Where's God? The problem isn't where's God. The problem is where is your sight? Do you have the faculty to see God? That's the question. And and what Scripture tells us is that apart from the Holy Spirit, we don't have that faculty. When you read Romans 1 and it says God revealed Himself in creation and nature, and men took that and then twisted it and distorted it. That's what fallen man does apart from the Holy Spirit. We don't see it right. We're not seeing it correctly. So we need a teacher, but not just an external teacher. Because Jesus was probably the best teacher ever, amen? But there were those who heard his teaching and they didn't understand a word of it. Because they didn't have the inward teacher. That's why he said, it's to your advantage that I go away. Because then I'll come again and I'll be on the inside. And I can teach you on the inside. So you can understand. Okay? So, what happens is that the more that we are consistently filled with the Spirit, the more that we learn to walk in the Spirit, the more of God we will see. The more of God we will know. Because that's one of His primary ministries, to reveal the Father and the Son to us. And the more we see, when I'm using the word see, I mean see, not think, but see, the more we really see, the more we will hallow His name. And as a result, the more we will praise Him. You see? Oh, do you see? That's, Paul, that, that's why Paul talks about, when he talks about worship in a number of different texts, he, he talks about the Holy Spirit, because apart from the, the Holy Spirit, we can 
go through worship, if you will. But it's not spiritual worship in the sense that God is is, uh, desiring from us unless the Holy Spirit is working in that worship and working in our hearts. So, the Holy Spirit is given to us to teach us who the Father is and who the Son is. And as we, as we learn to know Him, as we learn to see Him, then this, this results in our giving thanks and praise to Him because we recognize who He is. I mean, we sing these songs and we sit there, holy, holy, holy. Do we really, wow. I mean, really. Do we really know what the holiness of God is? You know, we sing about his, his love. Do we really understand that? Do we really understand what it means that he's righteous? I mean, go down the list of his attributes. You know, we, we should study his word to learn who he is. But listen, his word apart from his spirit is not enough. If it was, he wouldn't have given us the Holy Spirit. He wouldn't have called him the spirit of truth. He wouldn't have referred to him as a teacher. The word is good, amen? I love the word. But if the word is feeding you, if the word is teaching you, it's because the Holy Spirit is doing that. And so, we must implore the Holy Spirit to illuminate us to aid us that we might worship God in an acceptable way. Um, So, his primary ministry regarding this topic of worship is one of illumination or instruction. Giving us spiritual sight. But another thing he does, and I'll make this short for the sake of time, is he also... He also moves the affections, if you will. The the Puritans like to say that he would warm the heart. Don't you love that? He would warm the heart. I love that. Ever go through a worship service and sing the songs and it's like, eh. You know what I mean? Then another time you sing the same song, it's like, oh, God. I'm on fire. Well, what's the difference? The songs didn't change. You all know what I'm talking about, right? If you've been around, you know what I'm talking about, right? So what's the difference? It's because in one case, the Spirit's actually working and He's warming your heart. Not only does He, he give sight to the mind, but then He moves the affections. Um, you know, as, as, as uh, Paul said, that, he, that God works in us to will and to do of His good pleasure. To will, He He moves us in our will. Okay. Um, and what the mind truly sees, ultimately the heart will really feel. What the mind truly sees, ultimately the heart will really feel. And these two things go together. Remember what Paul says in, in Corinthians. He says, "I'll sing with my spirit." but I will sing with my understanding. See, the two go together. Some Christians lean toward the understanding part and they have a very cerebral Christianity. And that affects their worship. And then you have others who really go, wait, let's go to the spirit way and it doesn't matter what we think. We're just like, it's all emotion. 
Both of these are, are extremes and they're, and they're errors. The midpoint is, the, is God's way. I sing with my mind. I sing with my spirit. I sing with the understanding. I sing with my heart. And they both go together. So we have a teacher that instructs our heart, but he also, excuse me, instructs our mind. He gives us light so that we understand what we're saying when we say, God, you are holy. But he also moves our affections. He warms our heart. He makes our worship lively, as the Puritans would say. In other words, it's real on the inside. It's not just words that I'm saying. It's real. Um, let me uh, read Stephen Charnock, Puritan. This is his book on the attributes of God. Um, actually, this is only volume one. <laughs> he wrote about a thousand pages on who God was. And he did this. This what amazing thing about this, this book, um, it was actually his private meditations that he wrote out. And then years and years later, um, he was asked to speak or teach regarding God's attributes. And basically, what we have is about a thousand pages of profound, deep meditation on the character of God. I recommend that everybody buy this book. You can get it really cheap. Um, the only way you can read it, though, is, is read like one or two pages a day. Because you won't be able to digest more than that. But the book is worth the chapter on worship. He has one chapter. It's called Unspiritual Worship. When I bought the book years ago, that was the first chapter I read, and I've read that chapter many times. It is the best thing I've ever read on worship. It's really good. A quote. I remember, he's a Puritan, right? He's an old guy. He says, The matter of worship is spiritual. It consists in love of God, faith in God, recourse to His goodness, meditation on Him, and communion with Him. It lays aside the ceremonial, spiritualizes the moral. The commands that concerned our duty to God, as well as those that concerned our duty to our neighbor, were reduced by Christ to their spiritual intention. The motives are spiritual. It is a state of more grace, as well as more truth, supported by spiritual promises beaming out in spiritual privileges. Heaven comes down into the earth to spiritualize earth for heaven. The manner of worship is more spiritual. Higher flights of the soul, stronger ardors of affection, sincere aims at his glory. Listen, mists are removed from our minds, clogs from the soul. (laughs) I love it. More of love than fear. Faith in Christ kindles the affections and works by them. The assistance to the spiritual worship are greater. The spirit does not drop, but is plentifully poured out. It does not light sometimes upon, but dwells in the heart. Christ suited the gospel to a spiritual heart, and the spirit changes the carnal heart to make it fit for a spiritual worship. Did you hear that? Christ suited the gospel to a spiritual heart, and the Spirit changes the carnal heart to make it fit for a spiritual gospel. He blows upon the garden and causes the spices to flow forth. 
Our blessed Lord and Savior, by His death, revealed to us the nature of God. And after His ascension, He sent His Spirit to fit us for the worship of God and converse converse with Him. One spiritual, evangelical, believing breath is more delightful to God than millions of altars made up of the richest pearls and smoking with the costliest sacrifices because it is spiritual. Isn't that good? I know it's a lot there. That's just one paragraph. The point is, is that God grants us His Spirit that we might worship Him in a way that is acceptable and pleasing to Him. And what pleases Him is spiritual worship. So He gives us His Spirit and it removes the clogs from our mind and from our soul. And so the mind is illuminated and the heart is warmed, if you will. The affections are raised. And this is the, this is the kind of worship that God desires from us. And as we are filled with the Spirit, it's easy to then fulfill the injunction. Speak to one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, right? Making melody in your heart, giving thanks to the Lord, because these then become the natural expressions of what is the Spirit is doing in us. Amen? Oh, i got to read one more line. Is that all right? Then we're going to close. Because this really struck me. Um, one more line. Uh, if I can find it. But yeah, here. Well, it's maybe a couple lines. <laughs> no, the, the, I want you to... This is important. Uh, <clears throat> he, says, he says, Spiritual worship is done by the influence and with the assistance of the Spirit of God. And this is what really struck me. Now, I've read this many times, but this struck me this last time I read it this week. He says, A heart may be spiritual when a particular act of worship may not be spiritual. In other words, the Spirit might dwell in someone's heart, they're really saved, but at the moment, at any given moment, what they're doing may not be spiritual. The Spirit may dwell in the heart when he may suspend his influence on the act. And then he says this, Our worship is then spiritual when the fire that kindles our affections comes from heaven. See, I think, I think what, and, and so here's what he says because of that. Well, let me just say this. So, you know, what happens is, you know, you can be doing good with the Lord and you come to church to worship, but the worship itself is something that needs to be spiritual. The, 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 the thoughts, the, the um, affirmations, the affections have to be spiritual at that moment to make it spiritual worship. And so that's what he's trying to get. So, so here's what he says, and this is really important. He says, to render our worship spiritual, we should, before every engagement in it, implore the actual presence of the Spirit. Did you hear what he said? Now, if I were to ask you, how many of you prayed this morning that you would worship spiritually before you arrive today? Or how many even when you got here 
when worship began, really prayed, Holy Spirit, fill me. Holy Spirit, make my worship pleasing. Holy Spirit, have your way now. How many of us really did that? That's what he's saying that we need to do. And he's right. We need to implore the Spirit's assistance so that when we worship, we do so in a way that is pleasing to our Father. Amen? It's about Him. It's not about us. It's about pleasing Him in our worship. We worship Him to bring Him glory by declaring who He is. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Lord, we thank You for the precious gift of Your Spirit. And I ask, Lord, that... um, He would continue to teach us, each one of us, who you are. I pray that each one of us, Lord, would be students of your word. That we would meditate and study your word. But Lord, that we would implore the assistance and the instruction of your spirit as we do so. I ask that as we gather corporately in life groups and prayer meetings and Sunday morning, and as we pray and as we worship, Lord, we implore your assistance. We ask for your, that your Holy Spirit would, would um, truly make our prayer and our worship spiritual, a spiritual offering to you, a living sacrifice to you, Lord, quickened by your Spirit. And I pray, Lord, that you would, um, through the Spirit's work in our lives, you would be pleased, you would be honored. We love you very much, Jesus, and we want to please you in all that we do. We pray in your name. Amen.